You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am delighted to have you with me for the next hour on our weekly visit to the world of the arts. Early January has always been a slightly tricky time for an arts show, as even in non-pandemic times, there is very little happening during these first few wintry weeks of the year. But even when the arts take a break, those who love the arts continue to love them without pause and instead simply pine for their return. And of course, those same ardent arts fans have been in a pretty constant state of pining for almost a year now. None more, I would think, than my guest on this morning's show, the mother of Speaking of the Arts, the one and only Monica Senecal Palmer. Good morning, Monica. Good morning. I'm pining but loving your voice, and your voice <laughs> is an art form in itself, so it's, <laughs> it's always a pleasure to hear you. And I love your, your, your introductions. They always suck me in. You know, it's like that beautiful thing that you have at the beginning of a, a performance or something. You just know something magic is about to happen here, so I love your introductions. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I mean, my voice doesn't work as well outside of America. You know, I'm actually from Arkansas, but I, I perfected this English accent. <laughs> well done. I mean, very, very cunning and wise. <laughs> Almost as good as Quinn Gresham at the Lyceum Theatre. Oh, he's magic, though. So. <laughs> he, he does a great English accent. He does, yes. Yeah. So going back to the pining for the arts, yes. do you have words to describe how much you are pining for live arts? Oh, there's not a word. It's just, it's kind of this um, emptiness, you know, it's just like just waiting, you know, it's kind of like the little orphan in Oliver Twist, you know, please, sir, may I have some more, <laughs> you know, I'm just holding my bowl out and I'm ready for it to be filled with something good and delicious and wonderful. And it's just like, I'll take whatever you'll put in there. You know, if you've got something virtual, if you've got something, you know, that's going to give me a taste of that thing that I love put it in there, but it's a craving, you know, it's, it's definitely pining is in there, craving, emptiness, you know, it's just, it's, ugh, you know, uh, but it, it's not just for the, the people who are waiting with the bowl, though, I think the people that are back there in the kitchen with all the stuff and, and they're ready <laughs> to cook it, you know, the artists themselves are pining and it's just, a, it's just a, a sad, distant time. I remember you sneaking off to see something earlier last year when I thought you were being terribly naughty going out and seeing something. But yes. I think afterwards you said, I'm dying here. Like I, I have to go and see something. And just the sheer joy that sitting in a seat in a venue and watching live performance after after really quite a short time. This was, I think, in early summer, you snuck out and, and saw something. Yeah. How was that to sit in a theatre after so long? 
Well, it was, I mean, we left and and my husband was like, oh, it was pretty good. And I was like, what are you talking about? That was magic. (laughs) That was amazing. It was, I was crying. I was laughing. I was, I had chills on my chills, you know, but I, I I wonder, you know, if I had been at my steady dose of, (laughs) of my, my drug of choice of theater, if I would have been so elated by it. I think it was just the fact that, you know, I had been in withdrawal and I was wanting that experience. And there's just something, if you could bottle that experience up and then also send that out with the virtual experiences, maybe that would help. But there's something there. There's something in that communal experience of art that you can't define. And that's what I was missing. That's what I was needing. And and I felt horrible. And you know, we had a conversation and you, you know, I was agreeing with you on every single wise, intelligent point you were making. Yes, it's ridiculously unsafe to go out in the public venue right now. Yes, it, all of these things are true. Also, I'm going to go <laughs> because <laughs> I, I am compelled and I have to and I need it. And I was in a tricky place with my, you know, I had no idea. I mean, I think I had an idea, but I I had no, um, like, awareness, I think, of how much the arts had become a part of my mental health strategy, you know, like how important that was to me to process my own feelings and my own life and, you know, have those little doses of escape in a, a wonderful communal way and know that everybody's kind of on a complex journey. But here in this space, we're equals and we're dealing with stuff together and we're laughing together and we're crying together. There's something, you know, we're tribal by nature, you know, and so to to be able to get around that campfire of a stage and hear stories together and feel stories together I need it. I know that I need it. (laughs) And so I miss it. Yeah. I think you said in 2019, you went to, was it over 80 live performances of theater? (laughs) That sounds right. But I was probably not counting them all because it was probably theatrical performances. And I wasn't counting concerts um, or comedy (laughs) shows or so. So it was way more than 80. Yeah. So I mean, my family, you know, I'm the literal and figurative driver of our family's entertainment. And one of my vows to my husband on our wedding day was it may not be easy always to be married to me, but it will always be fun. So <laughs> I've taken that vow seriously, and I've tried to pack our weekends with fun adventures. And we've been known to drive to Kansas City for a matinee and then head out to Jefferson City for an evening show. You know, that's a normal kind of thing that we would do. And and, and lots of theater, lots of concerts, lots of art galleries, lots of art. You've driven to Denver for a show, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> we did. <laughs> it was it was the the Broadway uh, previews for Frozen the musical, so obviously we were going to go and see that. <laughs> and there was an incident en route, I believe. Yeah. Well. Okay. So. I was also um, doing some contract work for Missouri Symphony Society at the time. It was Moss at that time. And so I I had promised to help out with uh, the silent movie. And so the silent movie was the day after the show that we were seeing in Denver. So we had to like, we had to book it there and book it back. So on the booking it there part, um, 
my husband may have gotten a little fast. <laughs> and so all of a sudden we see these lights in our rear view. And, and Anna, you know, I think she was three at the time. She was very little. But she just started panicking. She was like, oh, are we going to jail? Are we going to miss Elsa? What's happening? And she worked herself up into a state. She made her theater mama proud because she <laughs> was, she had the waterworks going, everything. And so by the time the officer came up to the window, he was like, oh, what's, you know, what, uh, do you know how fast you were going, first of all? And then where are you going? And so we explained to him that we had tickets for a show in two hours or whatever it was. And, and he took one look at Anna wearing her Elsa dress full on with wig and <laughs> gloves and <laughs> shoes and everything. And, and he was like, well, I'm just going to give you a warning. You guys go ahead. <laughs> Didn't get an escort or anything. Like, I'll escort you there. Yeah. I, I really wish that story. I'm going to change that story from now on. When I tell it, I'm going to I'm going to add in the bit about getting an escort because I think it needs that. <laughs> and was was the show everything that Anna hoped it would be? Oh, it was so good. I mean that that show. There were there were beautiful things for you know Disney period. They have this gift of being able to work in things, Easter eggs, you know, for the adults and for the children. And but on Broadway, some of the things that they've been doing with their their Broadway productions. I mean, just the imagine the task of doing some of the things that an animator can do, but doing it live in front of an audience, in front of their face. You have to make Elsa change her dress into her icy regalia. You know, you have to make her be able to shoot ice out of her hands. <laughs> How are you going to do that on a state? Well, some brilliant technical geniuses figured out a way to do it, and it was breathtaking. It was so good. I have sat in a theatre with you and Anna. And Anna is, what is she, eight now? She's almost nine. She'll be nine in a week, yeah. And she is such a good theatre-goer. I mean, I've also <laughs> sat in a lot of theatres with children that are really squirmy and and I've, you know, vowed to never sit next to a child again because, you know, it distracts you. But Anna, even in things where I think this is really kind of a a grown-up show in terms of things are probably going over her head. She is so quiet and respectful of the process, of of the actors, of where we are. You've done a great job there. Well, you know, I think part of it is just exposure, right? You know, everything is conditioning, you know, and there's that referencing thing that kids do. They'll watch you, they'll watch the parent. And if the parent isn't sucked into something, if they're not engaged in something, you know, the kid will see that and think, oh, well, this isn't that important a thing, or I can check my phone, or I can check out of this or whatever. So they've grown up watching this addict, this <laughs> arts addict. And so they know that's you know, something is happening here. And if I don't lose myself completely in it, I, I might miss something. And so they, they are good. And then, you know, they've both had to to different degrees, both of my children have had the opportunity to to perform. And, you know, a lot of people used to think that I was trying to raise my kids to be the next American Idol or, <laughs> you know, movie star or whatever. But that was never my intent. My intent is, you know, was always just to let them have a taste of what that is like. Because when you understand theater from the other side of it, it doesn't matter how good or bad or whatever you are, you understand how challenging and how much is actually happening that the people in the seats in the audience don't even understand, you know, how hard it is and how thrilling it is. And 
just the the things that happen. And so I'm so glad that we've had the opportunity because in the town where I grew up, there was no children's theater. I had no idea how fun theater was until I was a fully grown adult. So <laughs> I'm so glad that my kiddos had, you know, and sad week this week, we had some horribly sad news that Pace, one of the children's theater groups in town, has closed their doors. And that was heartbreaking for our family, you know, because Gabe has been in Peter Pan. He was uh, one of the darling children. <laughs> and that was a really special experience for us. But, you know, we're, we're just fortunate, you know, we have Trips and Jabberwocky, wonderful organizations that help kids understand what's going on, you know, and I think that makes a difference when then they're in the theater in a patron seat and they understand that this is not television or YouTube. These people can actually see you and they can feel the energy that you're giving them. And it's a reciprocal kind of thing that's happening. And if you check out or if you're rude or if you're too energetic in your seat while the performance doesn't call for that level of energy, it can throw the balance off. And you understand that if you get that chance to get up on stage. And I've had Jill Womack, who leads Trips Theatre Reaching Young People, on the show a couple of times in the past year. And we've talked about exactly that idea of what an early introduction to theatre, what it gives to children as they move through life. It gives them an incredible array of skills that those of us who didn't have that experience, you know, struggle to attain sometimes. How has theatre benefited Gabe's life, would you say? Well, Gabe, you know, he just turned 14, and I, I say that he was doing shows in utero because I call his first performance <laughs> when I was in The Sound of Music, and you really can hide anything under a habit. I've proven that. So <laughs> I was about eight months pregnant, and I was Berta, the angry nun that didn't like Maria, and he kicked me really good one night when I was going up for my solo and changed the note that came out of my mouth a bit. But <laughs> So I call that his first time on stage because he did make his presence known, at least to me. <laughs> but um, so, you know, he's been, been, you know, around the theater and on the stage and stealing scenes as uh, Nico, the head flying monkey in Wizard of Oz. When I was the Wicked Witch, he stole every single scene from me, that little. <laughs> he was just so adorable. But. You know, there came a point, it was kind of a heartbreaking point for me because he said, you know, I think I'm done with theater. I think I've gotten what I, I wanted to get from from that. I want to explore some other things. And so, you know, he started doing band and getting into Lego robotics is his new thing. And But there was something that he took away from that. And I don't think he was able to articulate it until this past year when he saw me kind of struggling and, and talking with our family about why I missed theater and, and why that's such an important outlet for me, both as a spectator and a participant. And he said, you know what? You're right. There is something there. And there is something, uh, and, and he, he, just talking about it, he started missing it too. <laughs> and, but he realizes like there are some really brilliant people in the world that are really hard to listen to. <laughs> like they're just really hard to sit and listen to a podcast or an interview of them because they they don't have the confidence or they don't have the the skill to kind of bring you in and to really clearly articulate what they are thinking and feeling. And that's something that theater gives you. Having the confidence to just walk into a room and pitch a proposal for your idea, that's something theater gives you. So I mean, even if you have no intent to ever even do a show, there's something you can find from theater, and and I highly advocate everybody get their kids involved in some form of 
performance so that they have an outlet. It certainly has has worked for my kids and they've both, like Gabe's saying, you know, there's really something there. There's something that I took away from that that has made me different. I can tell that there's something different about the way that I talk to people and my other friends feel like they can't say the things, you know, they don't have the words. Well, it is indeed very sad that we are saying goodbye to Pace this week and this year after, I don't know, a couple of decades of being here. And we are also, I think, incredibly fortunate that Pace was one of two organizations that catered to young performers and that TRIPS is still here and going strong. And I hope that uh, it will continue and that more parents and more people in the community will be able to support them as we go forward. So on last week's show, I looked back over the past year of Arts Chats and I played clips from just a handful And it was really a marvel to me to see this long list of show guests and how in almost each of those conversations, we were talking about events, albeit mostly (laughs) virtual ones, that they were creating to keep us engaged. And like you say, I mean, a virtual experience can never be the same as sitting in the same physical space with an actor and, and waiting for the curtain to go up or a musician or an orchestra. I mean, that. That uh, frisson of being in the room, it's never going to be the same when you're watching it virtually. But um, tell me where you found some of your most profound engagements last year. Well, you know, I just want to add that another skill that theater or performing arts gives you is problem solving. You know, it's kind of like that point, I do jigsaw puzzles. And, you know, it's kind of like that point where you see all of these puzzle pieces and you think, this is ridiculous. Why am I doing this to myself? There's no way I'm going to ever figure this out. But then you're like, okay, no, wait, I'm going to organize. I'm going to separate by color. I'm going to go this little bit. At a time. And that's what arts organizations were doing all through 2020. They were just saying, okay, we can't do this, but I'm going to take this one little thing that I can do and I can flip this and I can make this work. And so maybe it means scaling it back. Maybe it means taking smaller bites or whatever Arts organizations were so brilliant at doing this this past year, and I was so impressed by everything that was attempted. But there were, you know, obviously there are going to be things that just blow you away. And I'd have to say the echelon of that was seeing Elizabeth Bratton Palmieri do natural shocks in her basement. I can't imagine seeing this show done any other way. <laughs> Absolutely. That's it what was, I said. Brilliant. It was so, so good. I don't think I've been that moved by a piece of art, like, you know, just that one person carrying this whole energy load <laughs> and this emotional content and, and doing it so beautifully. I was I was blown away by that. And one of the beautiful things about Liz is that she really lets you into the process by doing talkbacks or having conversations with patrons and I think that's a really special thing that you don't get with a lot of performers. And to hear her talk about when she was in her box, in her rectangle of Zoom and and sending this show out to us. And like she looked at the little green dot because obviously she has a Mac like I do. And she was sending her energy into that green dot, which is the camera on the Mac. And knowing that that portal was her way to get out of that box and into our homes and into our minds and to connect with us because that's the thing. That's that magic thing I was talking about at the top of the show that you get when you're 
in the same space with somebody and you feel that energy. I don't know how she did it, but I felt it. I felt like I was in a live performance. I felt the same kind of energy that I would have felt in a real theater in in front of actors. And it was it was it blew my mind. <laughs> it was so good. Every time I see Greenhouse Theatre Project productions, I mean that physicality, that mm. energy is so palpable always. And the fact that Elizabeth was able to condense it down into basically a two foot square. That's you move beyond that two foot square and you're out of the camera vision. So you've got to condense all this physicality into this small space and then focus it onto this tiny pinhole camera that you can barely see and you've got no feedback yeah. from the other side. That's amazing. Well, and you have you have no reciprocal energy. You know, that thing that I was talking about earlier that, you know, it's important for kids to understand that the audience plays an important part in a performance because they're feeding the the performance. They're the energizer bunny. They're the, what's fueling a performance a lot of times, you know, because actors will tell you they'll be in a rehearsal and they'll do the same exact show that they do later that night, but it's not the exact same show because the lines were all set at the right times and the right way. But something changed. And it's that energy flow, you know, between people when you're telling a story and you can feel, okay, they're getting it. Oh, they're, they're, they're getting tense. They're, they're feeling this thing they know. They, oh, you know, you can feel the moment when an audience gets it, you know, <laughs> when, when they're right there with you and you've got them in the palm of your hand. And, and the energy that Liz was portraying was as if she could read our minds. <laughs> like she knew, like when she had us and she knew how long to hold us. It was really magic. I know I use that word too much. <laughs> it was an incredibly well-written play too. Natural Shocks yes. is by Lauren Gunderson, who is, they call her the most famous playwright you've never heard of. And I think more of her, aside from Shakespeare, more of her works are being performed at any one time in America than, than any other playwright. It was a brilliant piece and it was perfectly done. Well, if you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Monica Senecal-Palmer, a little bit about the last year, a little bit about the arts in general. And last year you were on the show multiple times, mostly introducing us to the quirky and occasionally <laughs> sordid real lives of classical composers, who, of course, we forget did the same dumb stuff that we all do year in, year <laughs> out. And I want to play a wee clip of the chat we had about one composer in particular, the extraordinary 17th century Italian composer, Barbara Strozzi. Now, of all of the intrigues you have presented over the past few weeks from the world of classical music, I am most excited and intrigued for today's, for you have given me a new Shiro. <laughs> I want to hear nothing other than the music of Barbara Strozzi. From here on out, I am in love with her music. Are you? Really? Yeah. That's amazing because I started playing it and I was really digging it. And everyone in my household was like, what do you have on, Mom? Please turn it off. So it's not everyone's cup of tea, but you are an odd person. So <laughs> delight in that oddity and, and say, yes, Barbara, you and I, we are soul sisters. That's wonderful. And 
I really want to thank you once again, <laughs> Monica, for introducing me to her music because I think I was as guilty as many people in mentally compartmentalizing classical music into the genre of stuffed, dusty old men do. The fact that Barbara Strozzi existed and that other female classical composers existed was embarrassingly unknown to me. And you really set me off on a journey of recognizing my own biases and of learning not only about female composers of yore, but contemporary female composers and black composers. And I'm curious what arts journey you went on last year that maybe was unexpected. Well, I mean, that w- that was part of my journey. So, you know, <laughs> here I am working for this organization that I love. I've always had a fondness for classical music. And, you know, my first job in radio was working for a classical music station. And I grew up with it. I loved it. I was never really much of a musician myself. But as with many things, I'm, I'm much more adept at appreciating something than I am at producing it, <laughs> which is fine, because that in itself, I think, is an art form. So, um, so I, you know, I I wanted to find the key. I, and I think I, I made this clear that this was one of my goals when I took the job at the Missouri Symphony was I, I wanted to find the key for you personally. Like you were my goal. <laughs> <laughs> if I can get Diana to care about classical music, then I could get anyone to care. And so I, I knew that there was probably a way. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe if I can find some relevant pieces of information about the composer's lives or whatever. So I attacked you week after week with fun stories of guys dressing up in women's clothing and dancing on the bars and things like that. And You know me so well. I could tell you were intrigued, but <laughs> I didn't capture you. And so it was Barbara who helped me do that. So I'm glad that, that we discovered Barbara together. That was, <laughs> that was wonderful. And this whole idea of marginalized people or people who have felt like, and you even said it like yourself, you, you kind of compartmentalized this art form as like, this isn't for me, or this isn't something that's accessible to me or interesting to me. It's you basically putting a barrier on yourself, you know? And so, and there have been too many barriers, I think, with this art form of classical symphonic music. Well, you can't go there because of this, or you can't go here because of this, or we don't want your music because you're not a dusty old white man. (laughs) Um, So self-imposed barriers can be as dangerous as the ones put on us by society and by organizations. So we should always be questioning and we should always be open-minded about something and be ready to make our own judgments and find out for ourselves if something really is for us or if something really does have any appeal for us. You know, don't write it off before you've given yourself a chance to to enjoy it. And obviously you found some joy in Barbara where a lot of people, like my family, (laughs) will say, what the heck are you listening to? But who cares? If there's one thing that I learned from my friend Diana Moxon when I was asking her about what good art is and what I should buy to put up on my walls, you said to me, if you like it, it's good. Exactly. (laughs) Buy what you love. Listen to what you love. That's right. And I think it is that idea that when someone says classical music, I think, oh, Beethoven and Brahms, yeah, I'm not really into that. And so then I I discount the whole genre rather than saying, well, I really like this one composer called Barbara Strozzi and I really like Fred Onoverosworki's music. And so you you somehow it's delivered to us as a package. This is classical music rather than I don't say I don't like rap. 
I don't like some rap, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't generalize in the same way that I have learned to generalize about classical music. And so, yes, you, you gave me a good, a good lesson there. So thank you very much for advancing my journey. Okay, so I have a couple of quizzes for you. I have two Excellent. fun quizzes lined up for you. And so we can mix and match them. And you have, you have two choices. So here we go. You can have hindsight is twenty twenty quiz. Um, which is going to test your memory and how much you were paying attention. And we have Who Said It, which you introduced me to. But this time it's Can You Tell Your Bard from Your Jedi or Your Jedi from Your Dumbledore? And I know you are something of a Shakespeare scholar, but I have no idea of your Harry Potter or Star Wars knowledge. But surprisingly, they all sound rather the same. So um, which one do you want to start with? Oh, I have to do Who Said It. That sounds too delicious to pass So okay. determining quotes that are either Yoda, Dumbledore, or somebody from Shakespeare. Somebody, okay, I love it. <laughs> okay, here we go. It matters not what someone is born, but what they grow to be. Hmm. Dumbledore, Yoda, or Shakespeare? I'm going to say that's Dumbledore. That sounds like a Dumbledore thing. That is good. Spot on. Spot <laughs> All on. All right. Okay. One to one. <laughs> here we go. To the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. Oh, that's definitely Dumbledore. That's Gosh, you're good. <laughs> you tried to trick me by doing something <laughs> Okay. In the end, cowards are those who follow the dark side. Oh, well, the dark side. I mean, that's got to be Yoda, right? It's got to be Yoda. Yeah. Yeah. It's an easy one. Give it. Give away. I would give all my fame for a pot of ale and safety. Mm, Shakespeare. I can't remember the character though. Is it Lear? Who is it? Um... You're so good at this. It's, it's Henry V. It's... Henry V. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's boy in Henry Maple V. Maplewood's going to do that, by the way. So oh, nice really? plug for next season at Maplewood Barn. <laughs> I didn't even know. Um, okay. On many long journeys... Have I gone and waited too for others to return from journeys of their own? Some return, some are broken. Some come back so different, only their names remain. Hmm. Oh, this one's tough. I'm going to say Dumbledore. Oh, finally, I get a point. So <laughs> Was oh, Yoda. Was it Shakespeare? Oh, it was Yoda. Okay. <laughs> that seemed really wordy for Yoda. <laughs> and, and the syntax was correct. <laughs> yeah, I had to choose Yoda quotes that weren't, you know, in right. that strange little syntax order. Okay, one more and then we'll go to a piece of music. Okay. okay. Um, some rise by sin and some by virtue fall. That's pretty easy, actually. No, Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's the play? Um, measure for measure. Measure for measure. Yeah. Oh, good one. Good, good <laughs> quotes. Well done. I like that game. Thank you. <laughs> well, let's have a little musical break here. Last year, our good friend, Audra Circle, released a new EP called Sanctuary. And here is the title track. When you wake up in the morning With a chest so heavy you can't breathe And you look around for comfort And all you find is your pink heart on your sleeve Each day is some new battle 
another piece you leave behind. Each day is some new battle, another loss for humankind. I don't know quite what to say, but I'll come stay with you anyway. Let this song, let it be your refuge, a sanctuary.
And that was Sanctuary by Audra Sergal from her EP of the same name, which came out last September. So one of the super fascinating people I had on the show twice last year was arts consultant Sarah Leonard. Sarah is based in Columbia, Missouri, but works with non-profit arts clients across the country, advising them on their policies and strategies and the resources they need to thrive. And one of the things that we talked about was how this virtual world we all frequent what might happen when the real world opens up again? Let's take a listen. So given that most arts organizations are running on a shoestring budget, even in the best of times and shoestring staffing levels, if virtual programming is here to stay, and that brings with it a significant increase in workload without really an obvious path to an increase in income. How do you see this new virtual world being assimilated by smaller organizations? It's a great question, and, and I wish I had more concrete answers because smaller organizations are the ones I care so deeply about. Um, I, I'm not sure exactly what it's going to look like yet. I know that there are people out there who are advising smaller organizations to stop giving away virtual programming for free now, but for some and in some communities, that's more feasible than others. People seem to be more driven to pay for live-streamed experience than pre-recorded, things like that. It's going to be interesting to see because I'm curious to observe how, how much of it is related to discomfort coming back into a space for a certain part of our audiences, right? So they, those folks might be perfectly happy to see a live stream video of something going on live in the performance space. That would require an investment in technology and staff with the expertise to do that, but that can be done to varying degrees of sophistication. I think, you know, when we imagine virtual programming, I think our inclination is to imagine the National Theater Live, or kind of these just really big, robust, technologically advanced things. But virtual programming doesn't have to mean all your performances are now online and live. It can mean other ways of engaging as well. Not everything has to shoot the moon. So I encourage organizations to think about small ways to continue to engage people. So we need to know what impact we're trying to have and what we're trying to accomplish for those audience members. And then we can find tactics that scale from the very small to the very sophisticated that will fit our organization and be able to do that for our audiences. I also think that some organizations aren't going to continue virtual and that's okay. It's not going to be for everybody. It's not going to be within the scope for all organizations. So Monica, for you and I, as we've talked about, the communal experience of art is what makes it so powerful. But as Sarah said, that isn't true for everyone, especially now that we've experienced an alternative. So let me ask you, what are your thoughts on how the arts responds to this trying to have a foot in both camps challenge as we go forward? Have things changed? You know, I think it has. I was just talking to my friend Matt about this the other day, about the danger of making the magic mundane by bringing it into our space, into our home, you know, where you can still see the, the basket of laundry that needs to be put away and you can still see the dirty dishes or whatever. You're not going to that portal or that transportation 
theater, whatever, whatever the space is where you go and partake. Um, you don't get that kind of psychological cue that you're escaping, you know, you're still in your space. And so to, to then make the magic mundane by bringing it into that space, it kind of loses something for me. Uh, but, but like you say, it doesn't happen that way for everyone. And so some people really enjoy it because (laughs) right now, especially there's a trust issue of experiencing things communally, one, because of the pandemic, two, because of our political climate. We've started seeing other people as a threat to not only our enjoyment of things, but you know, our safety. And so that is going to be the hardest thing, I think, for us to overcome when we are ready to come together again and enjoy art together. Because um we've kind of gotten used to seeing this thing as something we have to do alone or with our family or our bubble. And that scares me as someone who craves that communal experience together. And part of that, you need the people. Arts organizations need the people. And I don't think that they're going, I don't think that we'll be able to completely transfer over to a virtual format. I don't think that that's feasible for doing the things that arts organizations do. Because it's just not the same, you know, virtually. I mean, I think we've done wonderful things. It's been brilliant to see the partnerships and the collaborations coming out between videographers um, and theaters and how they've been able to stream things and put them online. Hamilton, I mean, I've seen Hamilton in person and I saw the the production that was filmed and, and released on Disney. And you got to see things in that production that you would have never have seen if you had sat even in the front row. I mean, there were wonderful angles and shots that were put together. And that uh, video recording was an art in itself, just the recording itself and how it was done and in, in the shots and the editing was brilliant. But it, it, it leads to some dangerous gray areas, <laughs> um, you know, and I think that SAG and AFTRA and the unions have already kind of identified some things like these new territories of where your land ends and where mine begins and how do we separate that. But but I think for the consumer, from like the, the patron's point of view, I don't know about the people who are more satisfied with virtual. I think there's something wrong with them. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I, I just I want to believe my, my Pollyanna perspective on this is that the desire for virtual will never replace the in-person because I think that there's something that we get from that uh, that you'll never get from, from virtual or video recording. But I could be wrong. And I think there's an argument to look at and saying, well, what has Netflix done for movie going? Yeah. And yes, for some of us, I mean, I, I love going out to the movies and watching a movie with other people in the room, in that dark room, in that communal experience. But for a lot of people, they've no desire to do that. And so I wonder whether there may be a similar effect where some people desire to stay at home and watch theatre because they can sit on their sofa and they can go and get a drink whenever they want and whether that affects it. And then what is the knock-on effect financially? Because you are probably are not going to be able to charge the same price for a virtual ticket as for a real ticket. And after this time when so many organizations have struggled to find income, if you are taking even even 30% of the audience away and saying, well, they're not going to come because they'd rather watch it virtually, the financial impact of that is huge. And how do organizations survive that? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, so... 
What I wonder about, so you, the question about like, you know, what has Netflix done to the movie theater experience? I wonder, it, it really has more to do with how the industry is going to adapt to what the people say they want or what the people show they want by what they're doing. So movie theaters, even pre-pandemic, were starting to offer reclining seats and barriers, you know, so that you had your own private living room within the movie <laughs> theater. Like, I think that was the wrong approach. I mean, yeah, we say we want that. But if you wanted to be in your living room, you would have stayed in your living room. But you wanted something there that was at the theater that wasn't in your living room. Um I don't know. I I don't know what will happen. As well as being a consumer of the arts, you are also a content creator, formerly known as actor. (laughs) (laughs) So looking forward into the deep unknown of 2021, what are you hoping to be involved with and what will it take for you to feel safe? Hmm. Uh, You know, I think uh, to feel safe, I, I... there's this thing that's happening now. I don't know if you've you've had it. There's a visceral response that I have when I'm watching even a movie and two characters go to hug. I kind yes. of like tense up. <laughs> so I'm I'm more concerned for you know because you know there are ways to you know outdoor theater and things like that. There are ways to feel safe as a patron and you're distanced from other family pods and things like that. But I still am looking at the actors and I'm like, who's who's watching out for you? You know, well, how are you being safe? And, you know, that kind of thing. So I think, you know, it's it's going to be a little while before we overcome that kind of visceral response of, oh, they're in within six feet of each other. <laughs> so that I think will take a while to get out of my system. But and as an actor, I, you know, I felt that when, when we were doing Starting Gate, which was the 10 minute play festival, new play series that Talking Horse does. And I was only in a in a play with two other women, but just that kind of feeling of, you know, I was more worried that I could inadvertently be carrying something that would affect them. And so I was, you know, always very conscious about like, where am I breathing or where, you know, (laughs) stay underneath the level of their noses and mouths, you know, and things like that. So I think that uh, can artificially affect your performance for sure. So I don't know if I'll be doing any, uh, performing in 2021, which breaks my heart to say. I hope that performance organizations will still be putting out things virtually and when the weather cooperates, getting us outside to appreciate art and music and theater and all of that. So yeah. Do you think there'll be any new and exciting collaborations this year? I hope so. (laughs) There's one in particular that I have not been given a green light to talk about yet, but (laughs) there's one in particular that's uh, very exciting to me. There's a a group of people that I've fallen in love with over at Midwest Filmmakers Project, and they've been amazing throughout this year, helping arts organizations who are standing there with their hands up and shrugging and saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do the things that we did. And uh, this group of filmmakers are like, you know, hey, we built a streaming rig and we're going to put this out there for the world so they, they can see what you're doing. And this is what we do. So this lovely marriage is happening between groups like that and filmmakers and uh, theaters and things like that. So there there might be some things coming like that in 2021, which is exciting. Yes, I'd love to to know more. At what point do you think you might get a green light to talk about that? Uh, by the end of January, I should know. Yes. Okay, so will you promise to come and tell me first? You know I will. <laughs> <laughs> you You get the first scoop. 
It's in my contract. Yeah. Okay. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I thought I'd seen something about that written down somewhere. <laughs> well, let's have another piece of music. You introduced this one because this is another mutual friend of ours called Meredith Musgrove Shaw. Oh, okay. So <laughs> I thought you were saying that I introduced her to you and I was like, sure, I might have. I don't remember, but that sounds like something I would do. <laughs> I think you probably did actually. Yes. <laughs> yes. Meredith is amazing and she has balanced a family and professional career, but she's always had this seed of inspiration that's been blossoming inside of her and her creativity and songwriting. And she's a regular performer out at Cooper's Landing and some other local hotspots. I know I've seen her at Rose Music Hall. Uh, but she wrote a song. She's written many songs, but there was one in particular that kind of caught the ears of some important people. And she ended up going to Nashville and recording it. And you can find it on iTunes and Spotify and all those aggregates now. So, but this is uh, a song that's apt for a 2020 send off. It's called Whiskey Situation, and it's Meredith Musgrove Shaw. Some nights we cry in our wine. A little rosé to get through the night To drink away love that grew old A shot of something to make you bold But today no rum, no gin No butter brandy could ever begin To drown the pain that keeps going longer I guess it's time to pour something stronger Cause this right here's a whiskey situation Call up Jack and Jim Tell them bring their toughest friends
situation. And that was Meredith Musgrove Shaw, one of our fabulous local singer-songwriters with her new song called Whiskey Situation that came out at the end of last year. Okay, so I put together a Hindsight is 2020 quiz. So let's see (laughs) how good your memory is of things that happened last year. Some of them are theatre, some of them are not. Okay, here we go. The only in-house play of the year at Talking Horse Productions was the Green Book Wine Club train trip back in February, where six African-American women board a train in Kansas City before one of them gets transported back through time. What station did she get off at for her time travel adventure? Wow. Oh, (laughs) that was a lifetime ago. (laughs) (laughs) And I had a very strong drink from Dogmaster, so this is really unfair. What station? Oh, my gosh. No, I don't remember. I thought you definitely would know that one. You you know, I should. I should remember because there was a sign that said it and everything. It was Boonville. Boonville. I wanted to say Brighton. Why did I want to say Brighton? Like Brighton Beach Memoirs. Like I'm my brain. Yeah. Boonville. That's right. Yay. Okay, this this one might be more tricky. <clears throat> Local author Fong Gwyn brought out a novel earlier this year, and he was on the show. And their novel was a lipogram, which is a form of constrained writing where the writer omits a particular letter or letters. What letter of the alphabet did not appear in the novel? Oh, I, <laughs> I um, the letter F. <laughs> I'll give you a clue. It's usually a vowel. Oh, okay. Um, The letter O. No, it was the letter E. (laughs) That was my second guess. (laughs) I'll give you half a point for that then. Okay. Okay. Back in the summer, I had the international conductor, Marlon Daniel, on the show. Can Mm -hmm. you tell me what composer he is a world expert on? Oh, yes. Um, oh, uh, I know his his nickname is the Black Mozart. Um, Which I hate because really Mozart is the white version of him because he came first. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. Now I'm blanking because I'm on the spot. Mm-mm. Vincent, Saint Vincent. Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Yes. <laughs> yes, such a great name. Chevalier. Isn't that hair? In or is it horse? Horse. That's what it is. It's horse. I don't think it means it's either horse. in this case. I think it means like um, a, a genteel person, a, a knightly person. Oh, Chevalier, I, like that. I think. Anyway. Oh, Chevalier Saint-Germain. Yeah, definitely listen to his music, though. I mean, oh, that, love. that was one of the things that you introduced me to that I had no idea about. Oh, good. I'm glad, I, glad it was reciprocal <laughs> of the introductions. <laughs> okay, uh, let's see. Back in October, Talking Horse Productions had an online production of a play called Typhoid Mary by Tom Horan about the typhoid superspreader and the early virologists who worked out what was making everyone sick. What was Mary's full name? Oh. Well, she was played by Paula. Does that... <laughs> and, and Paula was amazing. Um, no. <laughs> what was her full name? Oh, my gosh. Typhoid Mary. That was her first name, Typhoid, last name Mary. Typhoid Mary. (laughs) Gonna have to fail you on that one. It was Mary Mallon. Mary Mallon? Yeah. Okay. Okay, last one. A few weeks ago, Skylark Bookshop owner Alex George was on the show talking about their Yolabogaflod. Can you tell me what a Yolabogaflod is? (laughs) 
You the fuck of Um <laughs> I don't know what it is, but will you please just say it for me one more time? <laughs> because it's amazing. You're the book of Lord. Yulebuk. It's Icelandic. Is it like you only live once? <laughs> book of the month? <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> well, Yola is Christmas and Boka is book oh. and Flod is flood. So it's the Christmas book flood of giving gifts of books on Christmas Eve and then everybody just sitting quietly and reading their book on Christmas Eve. It's a tradition that in Iceland. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I'm totally adopting Yulebuk of Flod in my house from now on. <laughs> Is it, what is that, Swedish? It's Icelandic. Oh, Icelandic. Mm-hmm. Oh, very yeah. nice, very nice. Well, I'm going well, to have to say that was, was, that was an a, that game. appalling performance by you, Monica. <laughs> I, I thought you were paying so more attention. <laughs> you thought wrong. I mean, it's not that I wasn't paying attention. It's just my memory has some issues. I'm, <laughs> I tell my children all the time that they got the best of me and this is what's left. So <laughs> apparently the memory is not there. <laughs> I didn't hear Alex talking about the what the, the Icelandic tradition book flood. Oh my gosh, you're a book of flood. Apparently, he makes Carrie say it all the time because he just loves it when she says it. <laughs> I love it when you say it. I'm going to like listen to this broadcast over and over just hearing that one sentence. <laughs> Maybe I'll just on the, I'll record it for you. Then you can just put it on your. It could be um, my ringtone. Like <laughs> you're a book of flood. You're a book of flood. You're a book of flood. <laughs> Please just send me that clip right there. (laughs) And that is it for another week. Huge thanks to my guest today, Monica Senecal Palmer, whose unabating passion for the arts is always an inspiration to me and who never fails to make me laugh. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm or you can also connect via the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thanks as always to Yasmin Williams whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. And finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with another peek behind the arts curtain. Until then... Stay arty, Columbia! Columbia.